0: If we as human beings are really interested in a very real way in our life moving towards freedom, the discovery of freedom, towards understanding the truth, the depth of truth, our life opening in love, if we're really interested in that, there are a number of themes that we cannot afford to turn away from, that we need to contemplate. And one of these, quite primary among these, is death, death and dying. And particularly our death. And so tonight I just want to explore a little bit exactly that the the contemplation of our death, the contemplation of death. One of the first things to say about that is that, perhaps obviously, this concerns us all. Can hear something like that and think, "Oh, that's just for old people," <laughs> or "That's just for those who are terminally ill," or whatever. Obviously, it concerns us all, but it's not a very popular subject. You know, as teachers, we get invited to teach daylongs in different places around the country, and oftentimes nowadays they want to know the title of the daylong sort of months in advance to sort of bring in the punters, basically and I just wonder what if you called it death <laughs> I wonder but who knows and we can look at our culture and what we can see is that there is there is a current within the culture I think it's fair to say of almost trying to pretend that it doesn't exist certainly that it won't exist for me but pretending it doesn't exist, a little bit just kind of turning away, or a, lot, a little bit trying to ignore it. And I don't want to blame our culture and this culture too much, I'm not, not going to get into that at all. But this turning away, almost trying to pretend it doesn't exist, comes at a price, it comes with a price. And I think it's, it's a large price, there's a lot to that. the more we turn away, the more we build the fear, the more fear of death. The more, in a way, disconnected we come from reality. Death is a fundamental truth of our reality, of our existence. Turning away, trying to ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, can only bring disconnection. And I don't know, I don't know even in Dharma circles how many of us regularly, regularly, in a very deliberate way, really go into this and and, and, and bring up, remind ourselves of death, contemplate our, our dying in order that transformation of the heart, transformation of the being is allowed. And I have actually no idea how many do that, no idea, but my sense just as a teacher talking to people is it's not that common. Sometimes when I just throw out the possibility in Dharma talks and I just see the faces go white and sort of don't want to know. Not everybody of course. But this contemplation doesn't have to be depressing, I mean, that's, that's I think quite key, it really doesn't have to be depressing friend was telling me being on retreat in India and walking and coming across by the side of the road the skull of a snake and somehow intuitively there was just this recognition of death and the fact of death and what came up was actually joy, recognition of her own death and what came up was joy and she couldn't even put her finger on why. Sometimes as we go into this contemplation of death it actually liberates joy funnily enough I think we need if we're going to take this on I think we do need to take it on as I've said we need to find a way of playing with it playing with it to make it work for ourselves I remember when my father died I was 26 and he died very suddenly he was 68 and it made a big impression on me and without even willing it somehow for actually for quite a few years afterwards, almost every night, lying in bed awake before going to sleep, just lying there quite peacefully, my mind would begin to imagine that I was lying on my deathbed, that when I fell asleep I wouldn't wake up, that these were my last moments and last hours. And in a way, I mean fun is too strong a word, but... um, (laughs) There was something actually playful about it, but also it it, it seemed to be carving a way in uh, in quite a deep way that over the gradual repetition of this, it was actually channeling something out in consciousness, which I think really had an effect and sometimes another friend was saying, "Yeah, I, tr- I think about it but i can't i can 't really believe it, it just remains theoretical I know i 'm going to die, but at, somehow i can't take it in. We need to play with it and and Shake it up a little bit. Imagine what the world is without us. Imagine a world without us. Where were we in 1820? Most most of us were. <laughs> if you've been to Asia and... and practiced in some of the monasteries, particularly in Southeast Asia, in the Buddhist countries, in Thailand, and etc. It's quite common to have skeletons hanging in the meditation hall. And so Yanai and I, another co-teacher, w- are, are working on this. for. God. <laughs> so if any of you want to donate, <laughs> it's quite hard to come by a skeleton these days, apparently. But uh, I actually think it would be a really good thing to have a skeleton in here. It's a reminder. Buddha says, every in-breath and every out-breath you should be contemplating death. It's quite strong. But the point is, it's a practice. Like all this stuff, like we were talking in the question answer period today, a lot of these insights and realizations, they're really practices. We need to repeat them and, and do it over and over again. Find ways to make it work. It's possible that we can read something about death or hear something in a talk about death and something really impresses on us or someone close to us dies and there's that strong impression. But the intensity of that moment will not be enough to, to change consciousness long term. And this is a, a general kind of guideline for practice. We need to practice with things over and over. Practice ways of looking ways of looking at life and ways of looking at death, in a way, that bring freedom. That's what practice is. Practicing ways of looking that bring freedom. For those who are, in a way, brave enough to, to try this, to, to enter into this path, contemplating death, one of the initial things that people find is it, it brings a sense of preciousness and wonder. Somehow the, the preciousness of our existence, the fact of being here, of awareness, the miracle of it, is kind of right there, is, is startlingly alive, startlingly brilliant in a way. It brings a preciousness to each moment and a wonder. It's really a, a blessing of the practice in that. There's a poem by a poet called W.S. Merwin. It's called For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out. Tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men as today writing after three days of rain hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what Beautiful poem, very, I don't know the word, sobering. Something grabs you right there in that. What a thing to contemplate. One of these days is the anniversary of my death. And pointing, I think, to this preciousness, the preciousness of our existence. But I feel also in, in this poem, pointing beyond that preciousness, because it's more than preciousness. And a sense of the preciousness of life is not the sole. Point of the contemplation of death. And the Buddha says, There is no greater contemplation than being aware of the impermanence of our life. Just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of all animals' footprints, so is this meditation of impermanence the most powerful of all meditations. And Gampopa, one of the great Indian yogis, by contemplating death, all attachment to every part of samsara is turned back. So both the Buddha and Gampopa pointing to immense potential in this contemplation of death, and then that has a number of levels to it. So, on one level, it can be almost practical in a way, and I remember talking with a person, a man, who was serving at a Dharma center, like this one. And he was in his 60s. And he had the opportunity to extend his period of service and keep serving the Dharma as, as a, like a manager. And then he realized that there was a kind of window of about six months where he would be able to spend a lot of time with his young grandchildren and that probably wouldn't happen again or he wasn't sure that it would happen again and he he was he didn't know what to do and sort of uh, tossing between these these two options so we were talking about it and i suggested that he actually imagine himself on his deathbed imagine himself on the deathbed looking back at his life and Imagining making either decision and which would you regret which would you regret so using the contemplation of death in a way to inform and to weigh our choices and we can't seem to decide between two paths that are very important to the heart it's very creative and very powerful and he did it and actually he decided to, that he would take this time to spend with his grandchildren and get to know them a little bit better He wasn't sure how long he had left. Using it creatively to to weigh our choices. In the traditions that go into the contemplation of death, one of the central pieces is that it brings urgency. Urgency. It's a kind of really indispensable spiritual factor is the factor of Urgency. We feel an urgency to live well, to really, really, really live well. And we'll say, what does it mean? What does it really mean to live well, to live this life well? And we can say, oh, well, I might see a yacht in Monaco and this and that. And, you know, hopefully immediately we say, well, that's not, that's not really that well. But even still, we can find our life and the current of our life moving towards wanting a nice place to live and a nice job and, and this and setting up things. And that's living well somehow. But we haven't really, really gone into it, perhaps. What does it really mean to live well? One of the polarities in, in this question is what is it a life of giving? or to nourish giving in our life, giving to life, versus a life of self-concern, or where there's, um, in a way sometimes we have a choice between these two. What am I nourishing? Self-concern or giving? And we can hear this and we can think, yeah, I know that, I know that. The point of contemplating death is it makes it, really present really urgent really alive really vivid for us so we do know these things well, hopefully we know and the more we practice the more we know life of giving is is a life lived well giving to life giving of one's gift to life not even just to you know one or two people maybe one's children or one's partner or whatever it is giving to life Versus self-concern. With that, and part of what comes with the urgency, what do I really most want in this life? I touched on this in the opening talk, but this is actually a really profound question, a beautiful question, and a necessary question. What do I really, really want most deeply in this life, for this life? So the urgency, Picasso said, Only put off until tomorrow what you are willing to die having left undone. Only put off until tomorrow what you are willing to die having left undone. friend was telling me I think it was last year or sometime in the last month in Plymouth which is one of the big cities nearby a new shopping mall was built and there was the opening day of the shopping mall 120,000 people showed up for the opening of the shopping mall <laughs> why? <laughs> why? this is our life and it's it's ticking away day by day. What is important to us? (laughs) Patrul Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan teachers of the last century, death closes in, never pausing for an instant, like the shadow of a mountain at sunset. Death is closing in, Right now, as we're speaking, in Pali, the language of the Buddha, there's this word anicca, anicca, and A A N I C C A, anicca. Usually gets translated as impermanent change, and that, that's its primary meaning. Another meaning is uncertainty, uncertain. Life and things and everything in life is uncertain. Uncertain. About two weeks ago, there was, some of you know this, there was a yogi here, a work yogi, who came quite a lot over the last, I don't know, three or four years, mostly as a work retreatant. And he died very suddenly, very suddenly he was traveling in Laos with a friend. He was 47. And myself and someone else here received a postcard from him that in the kind of confusion after his death, we, we realized was written probably just a few hours before he died. He was 47. The postcard was, full of happiness, full of optimism, full of plans. Tomorrow morning, off to Cambodia. He, ne- he never made that. It didn't happen. Next week, back in whatever it was, Bangkok then, and still a week to play. See you soon. 47, no inkling even a few hours before, anicca, uncertain. My father also when he died, after he died, and I, I was in America and I flew back and we were sorting out his um, stuff in his office uh, the week after he died. And found this letter, found this letter, and he had, he died on a Friday night and he'd written this letter and typed it out on the Friday afternoon, it was, I forget, to a bank or a business or something. For some reason, he wanted to post it on the Monday, and so he dated it on the Monday. No idea that he, he wouldn't be alive then. No inkling. And another friend who died about six months ago, similarly, no idea, had arrangements to play tennis the next morning. when this work retreatant obviously just what he was but that's how we knew him when he died and uh, feeling the reverberations around here and talking with people here and elsewhere who knew him and someone said you know reflecting on on realizing how, how suddenly it had come oh enjoy it while you can enjoy life while you can you don't know You know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when you're going to die. Enjoy it while you can. And then they added, I hope he died in his sleep. And I hope I die in my sleep. In a way, all very normal sentiments, normal human sentiments, understandable. But death doesn't give a damn whether you're awake or asleep. When it comes, it comes. And in a way, kind of probing a little bit further, If I say, enjoy it while you can, let me enjoy it while I can, and I hope it doesn't, you know, I hope I'm asleep when it happens, statements like that, sentiments like that, wishes like that, what attitude, what attitudes are they implying about our underlying feelings and assumptions about life and existence? so that they actually hold a lot a lot is unsaid in there a lot is unspoken a lot of assumptions and views about life and death are right there in those statements when we contemplate death there are actually we can do that in different ways with a lot of different results a lot of different things can come out of it one possibility is that we start contemplating death and what happens is fear comes up panic comes up Depression even comes up. So that's not what we want. We don't want to do that. And if, if one takes this on and that happens, then to come back another time. One isn't ready in that moment or even in that period in one's life and to come back, to come back. Sometimes one will find that fear comes up but it's actually not that strong it's not that strong and like we were talking again in in the question and answer period today if it's not that strong one can be aware of the fear it's there I'm not pushing it away I'm aware of it but just incline the awareness towards what else might be becoming clear in the depths some intentionality or clarity that's, that's clarifying there and to draw close to that to let that speak to one to let that influence one we could also contemplate death and this is again quite human Quite, it happens quite a lot we contemplate death or we are aware of our impending death and the reaction is that we grasp at pleasure and so there are quite a number of instances of People being told they have a terminal illness and going out there with the credit card and going a little bananas with the credit card, assuming that, hey, I'm not going to have to pay the bill and just living it up. And then, unfortunately, some medications kicking in. <laughs> and this, this, is, this has been going on. And, and then, now I've got this bill to pay. So, one of the reactions can be we grasp at pleasure. Enjoy it while you can. Another possibility is that we grasp at experience, all experience. We're so, we know nothing else but life and we start grasping at experience, anything, seeing, tasting, touching, all of it. That's actually very difficult to sustain. Sometimes it can, we can feel it's something spiritual. We want to touch life. We want to open to life. Actually, it's very difficult to sustain that. It wouldn't really sustain And again, we can contemplate death in a way that leads to, flows into, brings an urgency, an energy, energy, brings inspiration, brings a clarity, brings the intention to cultivate, to nourish, to take care of, to to nurture what is really beautiful in our life what is deeply and truly beautiful inside and outside and there's an urgency about that what really matters what really really matters the totally key and central question in our life what really matters In a way, one can look at the whole question from another angle. It's sort of the same thing, but from a different angle. And ask, what will make my death more problematic, more difficult? What is it that will make my death more problematic and more difficult? One of the things I think, and anyone honestly investigating this would come to, is that if the life has been given to accumulation accumulating possessions, power, prestige, stuff, property, etc. Versus if the life is given to renunciation, letting go, living lightly, and to generosity, as I said before, dana, dana. This is going to make a big difference when it comes to the big letting go. It's a huge difference. and and one sees this with people who are close to death how how much easier it is how much less problematic the death is a life of giving to to life giving to life one shares one's gifts with life I think we need, again, this is stuff that we can know we need to really sense it can can you get a sense of this in a way, the truth of this really need to sense it and deeply get a sense of this so that it affects the choices we make and the way we live. Another one, and again this is one that the, like the first one like that the Buddha put great emphasis on, regrets at the time of death in terms of how we acted and spoke with others. Our, our sila, our ethics, how, we, how caring we were in relationship to each other. when you're on your deathbed, you can't go back and do it again. Oftentimes you can't even go back and say, "Sorry." Regrets, moral regrets, regrets of behavior in, in that realm versus a life really lived with care at how we are with each other what I put out into the world for others. Having a sense on one's deathbed, what if we had a sense that one was in a way disconnected? This is a very hard one perhaps to hear. One looks back on one's life and feels that Maybe for much of it I was disconnected from a sense of wonder, a sense of this miracle in life, from a sense of the potential depths of consciousness. What would that be, to go through a life and look back and feel well, a lot of it was spent in disconnection? Versus Nourishing that sense of wonder in one's life. Nourishing the depths of consciousness. In the tradition we talk about samadhi. Deepening in meditation. Deepening in consciousness. And exploring that knowing that in this life. That we've drunk deeply from the well. And again, I, I find this a very sobering thought and very powerful reflection, what would it be to be on one's deathbed, if one is so lucky to be lying on one's deathbed and have the chance to reflect, what would it be to look back on one's life and in moments of clarity think, how many of my intentions, the countless flow of intentions in my life, how many of them were towards comfort, were towards convenience. I just wanted things to be convenient or comfortable for me. Were towards sense pleasure. Were towards keeping myself secure in my cocoon of security. Just think, count the stream of intentionality in one's life. How much of it, how much of the intentions were towards that? What would it be To be looking back, or if there is such a thing after death, and looking back at one's life and getting a sense of it, and thinking, how much of the intentions, small moments, seemingly insignificant moments, were given to those intentions. Is that what I want to feed in this life? Comfort, convenience, sense, pleasure, security. What else would make my death problematic, difficult? Well, delusion Delusion, not understanding deeply in life So not living close to impermanence Not as we were talking earlier in the question and answer This, this uh, seeing into the self and the emptiness of the self And this whole self-other duality If I die and that, that hasn't been questioned Delusion Ignorance is going to make the death very difficult. Very difficult. This self going. Versus Panya, in the tradition, P-A-N-N-A. Insight, understanding, wisdom. We've seen the emptiness of the self. We've seen the emptiness of things and even more of time, of death itself. Colossal shift. Colossal shift. So, we can contemplate death, as I said, in in different ways with different outcomes. One of the outcomes can be we contemplate death and we're eager. We want to seek this understanding. We want to seek panya, seek wisdom, a heartfelt understanding. It's interesting. The Buddha, right at the beginning of his path, before he left the palace, and I'm sure many of you know the story, how he was brought up, before he left the palace and even decided, as he was deciding to leave, his process of deciding, right from the beginning, it had to do with death. There was the four heavenly messengers he saw when he went out from the palace, uh, an aging person, a, a sick person, a dead person. And a renunciate, and he saw a dead person, and he said, he asked this question himself so powerful it rings you know two thousand five hundred years later it's still ringing like resounding, and he said to himself, and this is what made him leave and made him want a life of practice and before this he had no practice, and he, he reflected on what he would seen and said, Why should I, who am s- subject to death, why should I seek refuge in that which is also subject to death? Why? So there's lots of things in the palace or even in a spiritual practice I could get that's subject to death. But right from the beginning, he said, I want something, I want to discover something that's deathless, deathless. And I'm willing to risk my life for it. That was actually right from the beginning. It was, it was the encounter with death. and Death was kind of at the core of what he was about in his spiritual practice. I want to discover something deathless. It makes no sense for me to try and take refuge in anything but that. I'm going to die. Why should I seek refuge in something else that's going to die? And so our contemplation of death can, can similarly lead to I want to see something, I want to see, I want to see deeply, I want to understand something about life before I die. I really, really, really want to understand something. And the teachings say and we, we hear in, in in Dharma and different spiritual traditions, actually things are not what they seem to be. Things are not what they seem which means life is not what it seems. And I want to understand that. I want to understand that. When we're reflecting on death, thinking about death, contemplating death, it's important also to be kind of aware of what it is I believe in or what will happen after death what do I believe will happen after death (coughs) excuse me sometimes this this comes in in almost an unconscious way it's just like a uh, a hidden assumption almost we have options here Uh, heaven and hell has been very popular in this culture until until quite recently I don't know what percentage I, I know in well most Americans believe in, in heaven and hell but I think in England it's lost favor recently <laughs> if you're around sort of eastern spiritual traditions there's this notion of reincarnation reincarnation and the Buddha talks sort of about that and sometimes people say well actually that was just the cultural context he was in and everyone was assuming and talking and believing in those terms and so he responded in those terms but he didn't actually believe it I don't know I don't know possible, I'm not sure actually, this is kind of not really a sidetrack but in Buddhist teaching in Buddha Dharma it's not so much about reincarnation the words reincarnation it implies something going back into flesh carne, meat, flesh and B- B- Buddha Dharma talks more about rebirth. So I, I remember hearing a couple of analogies for what rebirth is, rather than a soul or an, ent- en- an entity re entering flesh, material form. Analogies, and they're quite interesting, analogies might be billiard balls or snooker balls. One ball is traveling with some momentum, hits another ball, and the first ball stops dead, just completely stops. And the second ball moves off at some angle, depending on how the other one has hit it, and takes up the momentum. And the first one stops dead. And that's actually, I can't remember where I heard this, a monk or someone somewhere, that's actually more akin to a, a dharmic understanding of rebirth. Or another analogy, you've got a candle flame, and you light another candle from that flame. Is it the same flame or is it different? So sometimes, with this reincarnation notion, we, we want to cling to this sense of self or soul, something that's going to be in something else, some core identity or entity, essence, that's going to land up in something else. And actually, the Dharma notion is quite different than that. So, heaven and hell, reincarnation, rebirth. Another option, and I think this is probably, I don't know, maybe the most popular one nowadays, I'm not sure. How many people nowadays assume total annihilation at death? Total annihilation. And again, this is one, it's so sort of, I think, culturally prevalent, even though it's maybe not put out there in a loud way in the way heaven and hell was sort of set in the last centuries. I wonder how many are kind of operating under that assumption. So quest, you know, statements like, enjoy it while you can, and uh, seeking pleasure, etc. Is that coming from an assumption of annihilation, whether we're conscious of it or not? It's important to explore this. What am I assuming? Or we might have an idea or, or a sense, even an image, of somehow merging into oneness, merging into some kind of cosmic oneness. This is also quite a popular one. There's a passage from Khalil Gibran, from the prophet, uh, when he, it's a little chapter on death, and towards the end it says, For what is it to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you, shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs... Then shall you truly dance. I mean, beautiful language. And I'm quite a fan of, of Khalil Gibran, but but there's actually it's a view. It's an assumption. It's an interesting one because sometimes we, in our life, can have a kind of mystical intuition of that merging, of that oneness of opening to that or moving towards that a sense of the oneness in the universe and one of the potential gifts of meditation is that we can really develop that sense of oneness and it becomes a very real perception but still we don't know and it's still in the realm of perception and we don't know and can we just face that that we don't know? Can we just be with that that we don't know? What do we know? Well, we know the body disintegrates it literally falls apart, it disintegrates, and actually, you can see even in this life the aging process starting. So as I can tell in my life, it started around the age of 20, and it was all been downhill since then. But generally, for most people around 30 or so, you really start to notice it's very clear. It begins to be clear. The aging process is happening. And then at death, the body, the, the biological forces that were holding the body together no longer operate, and the body disintegrates, it falls apart. And if you've ever been with a dead body and looked at a dead body and, and been in the presence of a dead body it's quite interesting the life force is really not there it's really absent the consciousness is really absent something's really gone from a dead body i remember when I, when i came back from america and, and just before my father's funeral spent some time with his body in the cemetery and how much smaller he looked he, the life force it kind of fills the being fills the body and at death that's gone and, and it just shrunk to the material form and seeing him I hadn't seen him act for a few months and just natural heart movement to want to touch him I was sort of shocked at, at seeing him like that and wanted to touch him and so taking the hand just out of love really and just touching his forehead and being shocked, it was a cold February day Cold February day And it was like touching a cold stone The heat had gone from the body It was it was striking And the body then disintegrates And if, if someone's been cremated And you look at their ashes And you think, and if you know the person It's just, in a way, it, it's kind of mind-boggling in one level Or it comes to bones and then to dust And this we know, this we know There's something about this process of what happens to the body, though, that we can use and contemplate. And Thich Nhat Hanh, this is a, a favorite theme of Thich Nhat Hanh, some of you know the Vietnamese Zen teacher. And in a way, it is is—it is an angle on oneness. So we know, just scientifically, that molecules and matter recycle. That what goes into the earth comes up and it feeds the flowers, and etc., and it gets recycled. And so there's a passage from him this body is just a manifestation like a cloud when a cloud is no longer a cloud it is not lost it has not become nothing it has transformed it has become rain therefore we should not identify ourselves with our body this body is not me I am not caught in this body I am life without limit that's actually not the greatest passage uh, of his explaining that but there's this sense of um, molecules recycling, atoms recycling, we know this uh, Walt Whitman said "When I'm, I think it's from Song of Myself when I'm gone, when I'm dead look for me under your boot heels and again, this is a practice so we can hear that and we can think, well oh, that's just stupid Okay, fine we can also hear that it can sound intriguing again in and of itself not going to make much difference it's a practice like all things that make a difference they need to be practices practice 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 and we practice um, if it feels like this would be helpful we practice seeing this way so that it's not just an idea a kind of cute idea a friend said she spent a while composting and just seeing that process, the literal recycling. You put something in, leaves, twigs, etc. And later it's something else. And Then you feed it to another plant and somehow it's in the plant. You see this process. We In Dharma teaching, the Buddha talked about contemplating the four elements. Earth, air, fire, water. Just contemplating that the elements in this body are not different from the elements outside. So the water, and in, in the tears, in the urine, in whatever it is, it's not that different from what I see in a puddle or the rain or whatever. Contemplating that commonality, it has to be a practice. We can take it on as a practice—a very beautiful practice. Something happens in terms of our perception of oneness, and potentially in terms of our relationship with death. So potentially, for some people, very helpful. But, you might ask, that's the material form. What about consciousness? What about consciousness? Well, material form we might recycle, but what we fear is the ending of consciousness. Someone a while ago told me that when her grandfather died, who she loved very much, after he died, she began... Noticing death everywhere all kinds of death everywhere turning the attention towards that and again can take it on as a practice and really sustain that as a seeing sustain the seeing if we do this what we begin to notice and you can see it in nature in the hedges and and all kinds of things that actually life needs death to make space for life otherwise it would it would just be overcrowded there wouldn't be enough room you actually see this in nature and in a way she also talked about seeing the naturalness of death and how natural it is for everything to die and there was a a comfort in that at at quite a deep level So, in the Dharma tradition we talk about contemplating impermanence and a big emphasis on that this can be done in a number of ways so one is that just every day we become aware of the flows in the day that the flow of the mood the flow of the mind state the flow of how the body feels listen and, and just is it the same in the morning as the evening so watching that flow in the day at an everyday level we can also be aware of impairments at a very microscopic level just moment to moment things are changing, changing, changing arising, passing, dying, dying, dying there's another way of contemplating it which is a little harder to get hold of but I feel more powerful being in the present moment aware of the context of death so aware that this moment, this sound, this sight this visual impression being right there and seeing it in a context of vastness of time where we are not here there is the unknown before eons, eons, billions and billions of years and billions of years afterwards and we are not here the context, of the vastness of time, the vastness of space, and being in the moment—it's a little more difficult to get a handle on as a practice, but extremely powerful. But it's important, I think, if we are contemplating impermanence, to make sure it's useful for us. Because oftentimes, you can contemplate impermanence actually not making much difference, and we're just doing it because it's supposed to be good for us. So finding a way to make it useful. It's not just that the Dharma is moving towards accepting impermanence, being okay with things coming and going and dying and being born and dying. That's actually not where we're headed, a kind of fluidity with the flow of life and death. Sometimes a person contemplates impermanence quite deeply in meditation and a sense comes up of huge spaciousness the spaciousness of awareness and within that everything is arising and passing it's being born out of that and dying back into it very beautiful state very lovely and transforming potential for meditators a person can think awareness this vast awareness that's the deathless seems to always be there, unchanging. But how do we know that that will stay like that when we die? How do we know that survives our death? How do we know that that's not just a perception? So enormously transforming, a lot of freedom in that, but is it, is it really the deathless? So we can ask a very kind of, what might sound like a strange question at one level. Why why would I want to live longer? Now on one level it's kind of it's just normal, natural impulse of life. But it's interesting the Buddha has this passage. Better than a hundred years lived without virtue, without ethical care. Uncentered is one day lived by a virtuous person absorbed in meditation. And better than a hundred years lived undiscerning, uncentered is one day lived by a discerning person absorbed in meditation. And better than a hundred years lived apathetic and unenergetic is one day lived energetic and firm. And better than a hundred years lived without seeing impermanence is one day lived seeing impermanence. And better than a hundred years better than a hundred years of life lived without seeing the ultimate truth, the ultimate Dhamma is one day lived seeing the ultimate truth, the ultimate Dhamma. So it's actually not just about how long we live. Why do we want to live so long? I'm going to leave a bit out cuz I'm conscious of time but at one level this I realize what I'm going to say is going to sound quite perhaps odd at one level what is life life is experience it's experiences at one level experiences that come to us through the senses the five senses smells, uh, sights, tastes, touch, and and sound, hearing. Five senses, and the, the sixth sense in Dharma is the sense of the mind, so thoughts, and emotions, and mind objects. And what we call life is the sum totality of experiences through the six senses, through the five physical senses, and the sense of the mind or the heart. Now, when I first heard that, I, I was absolutely furious. It sounded completely reductionistic to me, and anal, and cold, and, and nihilistic, and just horrible Buddhist rubbish. <laughs> but there's something, actually, it's pointing to something very beautiful in there. It's a the real key to freedom, something really beautiful. Life is just experience at one level, experience in terms of the six senses. And we don't yet really deeply understand experience. We don't understand what's happening through those six senses. We don't understand experience. And life, being experienced, is all we know. We don't know anything else than what comes to us through the six senses. That's all that we can relate to. So all that we can relate to is experience, which is life. Dharmically, to understand experience, what it means, to understand means to understand in a way that brings freedom, that brings a real deep okayness. When we're okay with life. We understand experience. We're okay with life. Being okay with life, we're okay with death. Life and death, two sides of the same coin, inseparable. So Sometimes people ask, lots of people, sometimes they ask me, what happens when we die? What do you think happens after we die? And actually I think the best answer is a question. What do you think happens when we live? Because we have... What seems so obvious? We have a given understanding, an assumption about the nature of life and what it is. I'm here. I'm giving a talk. You're just about staying <laughs> awake, trying to listen, and it, that's what life is. I'm here. You're there. It's such and such a day. This is Guy House, etc. That's that's what happens when we're alive, and we move about in that, and so. We think about death and we think, I want to have more life, I want to have more experiences, is what it means. And I've heard people say, I don't want to die, I still want to have this experience or that experience, there's there's things I still want to do, there's experiences I still want to have. And all this is extremely human and understandable. But do we know the emptiness of experience. Do we understand experience? So, experience and even time is empty. What does that mean? I don't have time to go into it tonight, but <laughs> there are the question and answer periods. So, no, I'm, I'm serious. But let's say a, a little, little piece. Without realizing it, and this is what delusion means in Buddhist terms. I'm actually going to take my time and just finish what I want to say tonight. Without realizing it, we build experience. The mind builds experience, and conversely, actually, the mind is built by experience. And we don't realize that we're doing that. And we do that at every level, from incredibly gross, so... An example is uh, using recently a tantrum. You're in the middle of a tantrum about something, and you, you, or you see a child in the, mid- in the middle of a tantrum. Something is the object, or some person, something has been built up by the mind in that state, and has come. come some experience has come to really be prominent and loud and built up. It's a big deal, and the self also is a big deal we can see in our life and then in our meditation even more subtly that when we let go of what builds things up we we start to let go of our one of the facts. we let go of our reactivity with things more and more we get skilled at that that actually we are building experience up less and less we build experience up and it can come to the point where we're so skilled at letting go of what builds experience, actually nothing arises. Nothing arises. And we see that all experience, which means all of life, is something that the mind is building. This extremely radical, counterintuitive teaching and understanding. And there's a spectrum. We can build experience up a lot, or less, or less, or less, or less or nothing but it's all experience any experience even the most given ordinary experience while I'm just sitting here doing nothing that's actually quite a built up experience just being is quite a built up experience now we can hear that and think well that's completely depressing or again that sounds nihilistic it's not at all I can actually guarantee that when one goes into this there's something so wonderful about that something so beautiful in the seeing of that and what that liberates in the heart and the, the intimations of that and what it really means is life is not what it seems to be nor is death and yet it's not something other than that it's empty, it's empty and this is not nihilistic and the Buddha, as a beautiful thing, says, he's talking about this. See the world. Learn to see the world as a mock show, as a play, as a bubble. See it as a mirage. One who regards the world this way, the king of death does not see. One who regards the world this way, the king of death does not see. There's another poem from something called the Teragata, verses of the elders, monks and nuns who reach liberation and write songs or poems. And, And one line from one of them is, Why grieve or lament only what is fabricated, only what is built in this kind of not really real way, only what is fabricated dies. And the Buddha's initial impulse, I want something that's deathless, we can actually discover that. Something deathless is something timeless. It's not, it's not eternal in that sense. It, it's beyond time. It's not something that lasts a really long time, like forever. It's beyond time. And the Buddha also has a passage. that says, When as our understanding of this deepens, you could say, we come to a point, there comes a point, our understanding of emptiness deepens. He says, when one no longer asks questions about existence, past, future, or present, such as, do I exist? Do I not exist? What am I? Who am I? Why am I? Or, this that I am, where have I come from and where will I go? One no longer asks such questions because one's had a whole different view, understanding of life has opened up. Very different. And I feel one of the, one of the beautiful, in a way, amazing things is that this this deepening into the seeing, as it deepens, it can deepen and we can see that and in a way live that from our heart more and more. As that deepens, it can almost paradoxically coexist with the, the urgency that I was talking about earlier. The urgency to want to give, to want to share our gift with the world. And Somehow there's a paradox in that maybe, somehow maybe they're different levels, but they can coexist in a very beautiful way. So it doesn't move into a nihilism, it actually frees our giving even more, frees our will to give even more. sit together for a couple of minutes quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.